Welcome to Digging Out. I'm your host, Claudia Shamrock. On today's program, the infatigable activist Gerline Joseph offers a history lesson on Haiti, posts the grueling conditions forced upon Haitian nationals all over the Americas, and acknowledges white saviorism pertaining to two now famous Haitians moving into DC with their five other siblings. We'll be right back. to the October 29th, 2020 edition of Digging Out. This program sets out to offer means for getting us through November 3rd, December 3rd, January 3rd, 2021. We're drawing on guests anywhere from around the world with whom we can collectively clear the debris from the last four years, the last 400 years, or even a couple of millennia. My guest today is Gerline Joseph, an activist involved in such consequential issues as immigration, socioeconomic and racial justice, domestic violence, child sexual abuse. She is the creator of Tales from the US-Mexico Borderlands and Beyond, an immigration information session focusing on black immigrants at the borderlands and beyond. She is also a co-creator of Faith in Action and Immigration Justice Movement in Southern California, a four-part immigration program for both impacted and communities and allies. Garlene serves as the executive director of the Haitian Bridge Alliance, assisting thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands at this point, of migrants who've journeyed from their native countries to Brazil, crossing 10 countries and up to 11 borders. Garlene also serves as the chairwoman of the Word and Action nonprofit organization organizing around the prevention and reduction of child sexual abuse. She also serves as an advisory member to Voices Against Violence in their efforts to prevent domestic violence in California and around the world. Additionally, Garlene has a platform, FYI, known as For Your Inspiration Radio located in Mission Viejo with correspondents in Africa to give a voice to the voiceless coast to coast and around the world. She was recently honored for her constant, what I call listeners, her 25-7 work with the Immigrant Defenders Champion of Social Justice Award and Women Four of Orange County was last year to mention only a few. Gerline's background is in the entertainment technology sector. It includes work with MAD Systems, found in museums such as Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles, Penny Nickel Children's Museum in Temecula, and the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. Formerly a bi-coastal activist, Gerline is going to tell us how it's working, zooming her activism and advocacy around the world in this pandemic. She comes to us today from her home in Mission Viejo, California. Welcome to Digging Out, Gerline Joseph. 
Thank you so much, Claudia, as you are speaking. I'm wondering, who is she talking about? We uh, are talking about you, and I want to make you a household name, and increasingly in more households. So, Gerlene, let's start with the very, very basic beginning. So listeners are going to be right on board here with what's been unfolding for quite a long time in all of your work. Let's start with how it is that Haitian nationals are risking so much to come to the United States. Thank you so much, Claudia. And digging out is perfect because this is exactly what we are trying to do. Um, I feel like we are in a deep well and we are trying to dig out. And as much as we try, we feel like we are being poured some type of concrete to make sure that we stay at the bottom. So thank you for having me. I have been in Orange County for 16 years now, and it's really amazing to see the changes. But when we speak about immigration and Black immigrants and Haitian immigrants, I myself, I was born in Haiti, grew up in New York, but been in California for 16 years, as I mentioned before. But we can take a look at Haiti itself. Yes, let's do that. Relationship to the United States. Uh, We have the United States as the first country in the Americas, and we have Haiti as the second country in the Americas, independent country. But Haiti is a Black country, and we fought for our independence as a slave revolt. For people who are not familiar with Haiti, Haiti is in the Caribbean. It's about an hour to an hour, 15 minutes away from Miami by plane. We are located in the Caribbean Sea to one island divided by two, the Haitian, uh, the Republic of Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And a little bit of more background, we are also the first country that Christopher Columbus settled in. So when the last La Nina, La Penta and La Santa Maria arrived, they started the first colony, the first space, the first land that they found refuge in was in Haiti. And so therefore, when we look at history, Haiti is the mother of the new world as we know it today. And as a black country that became freed as a slave revolt against the most powerful armies of the time against the French army, the the Spanish army, against the British, all those different superpowers were defeated by a small group of slaves. Thus, we have the the world as we have it today. And that that being such a potent development, that, that kind of organization that rallied against the occupiers there, the colonists, that it was such a symbol that, that had to be crushed for later movements that might take the playbook and apply it elsewhere. I mean, isn't that part of that that's sort of a legacy of Haiti? That is part of the legacy of Haiti. And also, when we look into the United States, the size of the United States, the fact that we in California are a part of the United States is as a direct result of the Haitian independence forcing the French to sell the land, the Louisiana Purchase. We have all throughout history studied the Louisiana Purchase 
But what is omitted in that history is the connections between Haiti and that purchase giving us the United States as we know it today. Yes. And so as we move forward with seeing the Haitian uh, asylum seeker, which has been a crisis for quite some time now, and uh, I can start from the from 2015. Okay. The first wave of asylum seekers started appearing at the border here in California between uh, Mexico and California. And then I can I can also give you a background of where those people came from. Please do. Their way here. I don't know if people remember in 2010, January 2010, they had an earthquake in Haiti that killed over 250,000 people on that day, leaving about 4 million people completely, completely without anything. No homes, no school, nothing. No civil society. No civil society. Which is key. It's a vacuum. Completely gone. And then we had a, a group of people who participated at a humanitarian program to go to Brazil to provide manual labor because at that time, mm-hmm. Brazil was in the middle of preparing for the Olympics and the World Cups that were supposed to be happening, you know, 2015 right. and 2016. So a lot of survivors of the earthquake, those who have lost everything, family members, their homes and everything, their businesses, ended up migrating to Brazil as a part of that program. Unfortunately, at the end of 2015, the economy of Brazil collapsed, the political system collapsed, and the first people to feel the weight of what was happening where the newly arrived black immigrants from Haiti and also from Africa. Like Cameroon so, and all, especially, right? Yes, from Cameroon, from many different countries in Africa. They made their way to Brazil. And as we probably know, and, and for those who do not know, Brazil has one of the largest black populations outside of Nigeria, As a country, when we look at population, Brazil has a large Black population. So we thought, for me personally, growing up studying, I understood that, but I didn't know how much racism and prejudice was prevalent within the Brazilian community itself. With the, like the Portuguese colonists and the the legacy of theirs. Okay. Exactly, exactly. And so those people literally felt like they were being pushed out, unwanted, abused for a second time, and they decided to make their way to the land of freedom. That's what we said around the world. We said that we are a land of, of fairness and freedom. So the people walked, they literally walked from Brazil all the way through South and Central America to make their way to North America. And that journey is an average time of five to six months and only the strongest survive. A lot of people die on the way 
they die in Panama, they die in, in Nicaragua, they die in the mountains of Colombia, in the waters, in the jungle. They actually have to go to the Darien Passage, which is one of the most dangerous places. I'm sorry, Gary, what's the name of the passage? The Darien Passage. Darien, okay. Yeah, which is one of the most dangerous places for anyone to be. But those people, because they have an ounce of hope and complete despair, they made their way through the jungle, coming and asked for asylum. And we saw a flow, a steady flow of asylum seekers and refugees coming starting in 2015, all the way up to today. So for those of you who've just tuned in, I want to reintroduce my guest is Gerline Joseph here on Digging Out. She's the executive director of the Haitian Bridge Alliance, creator of Tales from the U.S.-Mexico Borderlands and Beyond, an immigration information session. So now we are at 2015 at that point in time, and we're going to talk about how the, the rules changed, the goalposts moved from what was unfolding in the Obama administration and what has become the executive orders regulations from January 2017 to the present. It was, it were, there was a sort of a ratcheting down of opportunities for people to come in safely and remain in place. So when I'm asking these questions, I want listeners to think about how much legal training it takes for activist immigration to really tackle and make the case and work for, work with, support, advocate for the asylees that are coming here. So let's talk about what they had at that moment in 2015, what they could rely on entering the port of entry. Around that time, Claudia, they were allowed what is called a due process. So they will come to a port of entry. They will legally present themselves to the officers, the Homeland, Department of Homeland Security, and then they will make their case. They will have to pass what is called a credible fear interview, mm -hmm. which means they are either fearful of returning to their country of origin or the places they were in previously. So when the people will go to the process, that was in 2015, 2016, all the way to August 22nd, 2016, right before the elections, they will release those people with an order to appear in front of the judge. And those people will keep their appointments contrary to what we are hearing on right. TV and on the debate, those people will keep their appointment because they know that is the only way they will be able to continue the process. With or without a lawyer. With or without a lawyer. With or without maybe their, their cell phone, their flip phone, that they can get the notice about anything they need. I mean, that's like, those are two big things that may not be not present in their making their asylum case. 
Exactly, exactly. But but I will repeat: those people will keep those appointments, and they yes. will show up, which is and huge. They will continue the process. And so, with with that process, also what they were able to do, they were able to legally procure a work authorization, a social security card, a work authorization. Because how are they going to support themselves? if they cannot provide for themselves. Right. If we are thinking human with dignity, human who have a family to provide for, who have needs, who have rent and all of that. And keeping the family intact by providing. Keeping the family intact correctly. So that will literally allow them a way to survive while they still continue the process. And that makes sense, right? right? That 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 seems like the proper thing to do. But what's happening now is what our current president calls catch and release, which is a way to literally use that language to create the fear of something that is not real. Now we have those people instead of allowing them a way to survive while they go through the process, we put them in immigration prison. Privately or publicly. The majority owned and managed. Of, yeah, the majority of them are owned by private institutions. And we as taxpayers pay anywhere between 70 to $500 per day. Wow depending on where they are. And that includes parents, families with children and babies that are a few months old. So okay, that let, is what's that, that that. happening. Well, let's talk about the, the, all the broad sort of aspect of the asylees, the demographics. So there's children coming with their parents. There's whole families coming. There could be single single uh, prospective workers. Could you give us sort of all the breakdown of the different kinds of asylum applications? Yes. Um, They, as you just mentioned, they have single men, single women, families, mothers and children. And we also have children who have come by themselves. They could be minors. Minors, yeah. unaccompanied minors that might, might, might have come with a grandparent because all parents have been killed, you know, in Honduras <laughs> and places like that. And the grandparent barely able to escape with that child. But when they arrive, they will separate them. So that child become unaccompanied minor. So we have children that are, that are by themselves. We have family units. We have just single women with the children. We also have young men and young women who have, you know, made the journey to ask for asylum. And and when we sit down and we hear that those people are racist or rapists and murderers, and you're looking at a baby who is five years old, six months, six years old, seven and eight year old, and you're wondering that rhetoric is so untrue that you don't even know how to address it. Yeah. But this is the label that are being put on people who are simply coming asking for asylum. So, Gary, um, when they're making that application or that that doing that interview, 
for their declaration of the credible fear. And what languages are they doing those in? What, what's that's your experience? Another, yeah, that's another major issue. Um, the majority of the time they are supposed to be in the native language of the person. However, the most languages that they have available, you know, English and Spanish. So if you are a native Mayan speaker from Guatemala or El Salvador, you don't speak Spanish, then most likely there is a problem there. We have problems also with people from Haiti because yes. they speak, they speak uh, Creole. So most likely there will be a problem there. A and, lot so, of people- and, for, and let's say somebody thinks, oh, at DHS, they think oh, we've got this covered. We'll just try our French out in this group. But how far off, I mean, for that declaration, how far off are like the essential words that miss it, how very, to make the case? It's very off. It's very off. And also not only the language is off, is the manner in which those interviews are conducted. Okay. Imagine you barely survive through the journey, the trauma, the stress with all of this. And maybe the person you were with, your husband, your brother, your mm. cousin died on the way. You had to bury that person in Panama. You had to bury that person in Colombia. That person got drawn while they were trying to traverse the raging waters along the way. Yes. And the first thing that they do is that they put you in, a, in what they call the ice box. The, cold of the, the room is so cold, they call it an ice box it's for six to 12 days. And upon leaving that space, you get that interview. Most people don't even remember their names at that point. It's like a deprivation that just- It is a deprivation. And they are expecting that person to answer questions, it will be a two to three hour interview and you are supposed to answer those questions. You, you have, call, you have support, in, in their mind, you have to be able to go through that. So the majority of the people, they don't even understand what is happening. They don't even know that this is the credible fear interview. Because to them, this is one of the steps that they have to go through in order for them to make it to the other side. And that, now why did Gardine, and I, I know we want to get really right to the present, but I think some of us are confused. Why, when the Obama administration was still in the White House, you said things came to a bit of a halt on August 22nd of 2016. Yes, because at that time, it was all about the elections. You okay, know, so, uh, oh, there's yes. the cost. There's the opportunity cost. Yes, it was all about the elections and, and, and things kind of started moving, changing, but we saw a mm. drastic change once the new administration came to power on January 2017. And so in terms of the debris that, that we talk about in the show, there was this sort of disorienting, sort of kind of um, executive order issuing. There's sort of all kinds of mental aspects that were sort of conveyed from the White House 
to people in the country, people at the border, people coming from any one of those 10 countries to the south of the US border. I mean, it was like a many, many tactical kind of attack on people that were trying to be processed in a legal asylum process. Yes, and there have been so many policies, uh, uh, Claudia. And one thing that I say, and a lot of us on the ground have realized is that the wall that the president kept on talking about building the wall, I don't think it was never meant to be a physical wall because the policies that he had put in place have literally moved the wall from Tijuana all the way to the border of Mexico and Guatemala. So as we saw the progression over the last three years, they have been the wall moving, you know, from, from the US-Mexico border, down to moving Guatemala. down to the Mexico-Guatemalan border. And now it has moved all the way to the Panama border. Okay. Uh, uh, be- because right now, the majority of asylum seekers cannot even proceed once they get to Panama. Can I, there's a perverse barrier. I would say the wall kind of moves in between those borders that the wall versus the border is what we're trying to make the distinction here is that it could be the drug cartels or just the uh, freelancing kind of Uh, mules and uh, other opportunity takers are sort of intimidating anybody who's desperate to make their way all the way north to the U.S. border. So it's, is is that fair to sort of characterize those barriers as constantly moving for a person seeking asylum? Yes, there's those barriers and, and the policies create those barriers. So before, if people will come to ask for asylum and they were accessing due process, they wouldn't need to have to deal with those dangerous other possible avenues, right? Mm -hmm. But we are seeing because people can no longer appear and present their case. And I want people to understand these people are vetted these people have to do background checks. They have to, because we understand the connectivity between the United States and all these other countries. If you have committed a crime in your homeland, most likely that the United States will know. So the people, those asylum seekers are vetted before they are allowed into the country. So Gary, well, I, want, I want that to be clear because when we hear those, those people are, are criminals and all of that, the reality is it is not true. Sure, and would the, let's say a domestic abused woman had dealt with her abuser in perhaps a violent way, that is a charge against her, even though it was a defensive kind of uh, reaction in her dangerous setting. But that's still, a, that's a ding on her record. And, and unfortunately, I hate to say that in those countries, uh, women, they just flee. They just flee. They oh, that's not, what they do. There I, isn't. Yeah. Okay. Okay. There, there is not that they fought for their lives, and no, they literally will flee in the middle of the night, or when the husband or the abuser is not around, they will pack up and flee. 
right? Okay. That's why they will appear there without anything because they probably were able to just grab a couple of things and run for their lives. But understand that right now, that does not qualify for asylum. Right, right. And, and that got increasingly more difficult What within the last 10 months? Yes. And so it's asylum. Is there, we are now at October, 2020. Geraldine, is there any legal way a person could pursue asylum coming from Latin America? Is there, is, um, is, is, does it exist at all? At this moment, everything has stopped. Um, and, and it's not just from Latin America. We have people from China, from India, from Africa, from all over the world that are either coming for political reasons. There's a political asylum secrets that are running because of violence that are running because of, of climate change and, and, and the earthquake that happened in Haiti and storms and all of that. And the civil right, civil war conflict in, in Cameroon right. right now where people are literally being killed on a daily basis. Uh, you know, 13 children were, were gunned down and murdered a couple of days ago. So mm. people are running from these situations, right? That, that have been created, a lot of them, by colonial systems that were imposed into those, those, those places. Including so, our own, yes. It, 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 well, if we were just to talk about Haiti, that is, a, that is a classic case of the result of our own U.S. policies in ways of imperial relationships with the country not only because they are black, but because we have, we as, as, as the United States have invaded Haiti so many times, 1915, again, the 1940s, and continue the pressure and, and pressure of making sure that those people stay in a state of, of dependency on, on international aids. But that might be another discussion for another day. Another day, but uh, so in the, <laughs> in the, the back and forth, in electoral politics, with your experience, Geraldine, what is your best way to make the case? Or what is what is your success in getting the attention of someone in the, in the tribe that makes an immigration policy? They're very hard nosed about immigration. How can you engage them in saying? There's no existing legal way of coming into the U.S. There is no legal asylum. When they say, well, well, I came in legally, why can't the others? How do you break through that really hardwired disposition? Uh, it's the false narrative that needs to be changed. And, and exactly, why, why if your parents and grandparents and your fourth parents, Claudia, were able to come? Right. And why is it that people cannot come now? Because the same reason that your great-grandparents came are the same reason these people are coming. The reasons haven't changed. No. Right? The reason haven't changed. is the desire of the pursuit of happiness. Is the desire of, of fleeing because you have persecution, religious persecution and, and, and others. So... Why is it then the question still remains? Why is it that your parents, your forefathers were, were, were allowed to come and those people are not allowed to come? And people do not understand that right now, 
there is no way for them to come. Even as refugees that we understand, that has been cut to zero, to yeah. zero. That means, you know, under, under, under the previous administration, I believe it was from, from 90,000 to 110, 250,000 a year of people around the world who will be pre-approved to enter the country. But now there is zero chance for these people to come. So therefore they have to make the journey. And when they make the journey, they still don't have a chance. Right. And so right now we have violated, we as the United States have violated our own laws, the international laws that says and allows and give the right for people to legally come and ask for asylum. So Gernink, do you have a handle on, and I, I'm not sure if some of the clips that I've seen you um, post recently is, there are some people though that entered into the pipeline some two years or longer ago. So there's still some people that are in the US maybe are still, and maybe some in Mexico, but there is a small, small pipeline, but it, admittedly not very many, but it, th there's a few people that are coming in only because they began this process more than two years ago. Mm -hmm. Right now, there's nobody coming in. Everybody who shows up at the border will be put in prison. Period. Okay. And there's nobody in any kind of a hearing there's that, that has come to a complete end too. There's no later mm -hmm. stage review of a case. With the pandemic, now we see what is called a Title 42, yes. which is, yes. which is uh, directly dealing with, uh, with the pandemic, you know, that has been weaponized since April against asylum seekers, against migrants that are coming to the border. So originally the Title 42 was to sort of maintain a kind of public health standard for incoming residents. Mm -hmm. And now the crazy thing, uh, Claudia, is the fact that those people have not been tested positive for COVID-19. So what is the reason for not granting them a chance at, to do process, yeah. right? right? Because the reason why you're saying you don't want them to come is if they were sick, they are not. Right, so the, the whole system has been changed in a way and weaponized against, against immigrants and against migrants. And, and we see even, I, I'll tell you something you probably don't know. People who enters, pregnant women, who enters and give birth in this country, in San Diego, Right or right. in Texas or what, whatever, they will give birth to the baby here, and then they will return them to Mexico with the baby. But they're nationals, though. They're there's there's U.S. citizens. The babies. Yes, ma'am. Because they're born here. Yes, ma'am. But but they take their U.S. citizen offspring back to Mexico, where they're being processed. In the oh US. yeah, they send them back. They send they send the mother back with the baby, with the U.S. Okay. born baby, will be sent back, and it's another way to to show there is no access to asylum seekers, 
in the language, the narrative that is being coming from the highest level of the land, it, it is simply, you know, a reflection of what's been happening, what we see on a daily basis, what we hear on a daily basis when it comes to immigrants, asylum seekers, and refugees. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Digging Out. My guest is Gerline Joseph. She's the executive director of the Haitian Bridge Alliance. And she's talking about how deeply involved she has been in championing people down on every aspect of, of having a life at all that have come to all the way to the U.S. board from up to 10, 11 countries. So I don't mean to make this about me. I had the distinct privilege of having visited only for a moment, for a moment in the scheme of things, with you in August of 2019, where there was a kind of a bottleneck that the Haitian community that came all the way to the U.S. border has had to settle indefinitely in Tijuana. And so I wanna ask about some of those places that you showed us and how in those dense dwellings, how the pandemic is uh, complicating handling all of their needs. They were look pretty complicated in August, 2019, but with a pandemic, it's a whole new situation. It's terrible, Claudia. And again, I want to say thank you for taking the time to go see for yourself. In Haiti, we say, which means seeing, hearing and seeing are two different things. You get a different perspective when you right. see something uh, um, rather than when somebody tells you something. Um, we actually had to change our service providing ways for the folks in Tijuana we currently have a country director, organizing country director in Tijuana, and we are now doing uh, a cash assistance. And uh, we provide a 2,000 pesos, which is around $90 to $100 per month for families uh, so that they can so they can purchase, you know, food and, and milk and diapers and those type of things for their families because we can no longer do our biweekly humanitarian uh, trip to Tijuana. Um, but so they get ninety to hundred dollars for a family. How long does that allowance it last? Lasts, it lasts them. You know, they they make it stretch. You know, if they were to to really just use it, that's probably be a couple of weeks worth of food. They buy a, you know, they buy a, a rice and beans, very basic. They the very basic needs, but they make it stretch, and and, and that's all we can afford. That's all we can do, right? But they're um, living so, so closely together. Yes, yes, they are. And, and, and now you can imagine um, how difficult things are because people can no longer come. And I can tell you people who actually were so desperate mm. this past couple of months mm. that they said, okay, we'll take a chance. We will come. Claudia, what? between October 5th to today, the United States have deported, have had 13 flights, deportation flights to Haiti. 13 deportation flights, an average flight has 100 
20 to 150 people. That includes babies under the age of one. I need to flights. I need to time. I'm sorry. I need to timestamp this interview. We're conducting October 26th. I've been aware of how ice is moving around Southern California, but this is these flights are all along the U.S. And I'm I've been wondering if this is a pernicious tactic to try to sort of undermine the kind of civic engagement in getting out the vote in our election Mm -hmm. and sort of stirring it up and terrorizing, frightening the the heck out of everybody. So, um, but that's a lot of people and it has a a ripple effect throughout our entire body politic at this very busy moment. To our our entire community and keep in mind, that immigrant communities are on the forefront. And I can tell you the Haitian American community has been one of the hardest hit with COVID-19 because we are the doctors and the nurses and the nannies and the drivers and the cab drivers and the farmers. So therefore we are in the forefront making sure everybody else is okay while we are dying while our community is under extreme stress and fear and our people are getting deported to a speed that they have escaped for their lives. And that is happening on a daily basis. So I will repeat from October 5th, this month up to today, 12 to 13 deportation flights has been sent to Haiti. To Haiti. Every single day last week, we had a deportation flight. The week prior that, we even had two flights in one day. And I will repeat, that includes babies under the age of one year old. Letting that sink in, Gerline. And the, or there could be the breadwinner that's sort of taken out of the home. And so that home, and I've mentioned this on other digging out interviews is that cascading effect of just take, taking that out, it destabilizes those that are remaining here and it all goes south fast. It's already south, it just keeps going further south. Like the okay, analogy to- used about all the concrete down in the well. Yes, definitely, you know, trying to dig out and, and trying to get pushed back even deeper, deeper in, 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 in the well, in, the, in, in, the, in, in this abyss of fear and despair. And, and for me, and I, I, will, I will be, you know, very open as a Christian person, I, it is very, dis- I, I am beyond myself trying to understand how we say as a Christian nation, these are the way that we are treating people. And I'm only saying that because I am a Christian and as a Christian, I am speaking, looking at us and wondering where do we fall in the scheme of things for us to actually, for people to have the heart and their main goal is to destroy people's lives. The main goal is to destroy lives. And as, as many lives as they destroy, the better they feel that they have done their jobs. 
thinking by by forcing people to be deported to stay the same reason they are saying they're doing it to deter people from coming yeah they're yeah. still coming because that is the only hope they have and we are still seeing for a person's goal is to destroy lives that i cannot comprehend well speaking of good samaritans that's a heck of a segue to uh, Gerline, is Amy Coney Barrett's nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court, it just occurred prior to the taping of this interview and probably during the interview, she she was confirmed and she's probably been sworn in by the time this interview is over. Probably. So I would like, there's two parts to this story. There's the part about whatever the Coney Barrett family's motivations are to rescue two Haitian children. I want you to react to that. And I want you to react about what you anticipate, Gerline, her jurisprudence would be with respect to immigration policy. Uh, I can start with the second, and I can tell you it's, it's, it, there, there's no chance. She is against immigration. Um, she will follow whatever is dictated to her, obviously. Um, and as, as a woman, I, I have a lot of respect for, for her accomplishments, for, for all of that. But at the same time, for you to agree to go to the process, <laughs> right? right. There, there, there's a lot of question mark there. Yeah, a few. Just, just to, okay, agree to actually go to the process right now? And get confirmed, you know, eight days before the elections. I I feel like uh, the the justice system has failed the nation, and the administration, the Senate has failed the nation because they actually did that process in such a, a short period of time, and proving that they can do whatever they want whenever they want to. It doesn't matter what the, the, the American people want. It doesn't matter what, what we want to see. It's just about, again, a group of people making decisions and forcing everybody else to deal and live with that. Now, when it comes to the children, um, I do not know how she was able to, to adopt those children. They have a lot of question marks uh, uh, on that as well. And, and, and as a Haitian person, we have been looking into that. We still do not, we're not clear as to how she oh, was. Oh, really? You've her. really tracked it down. I'm, there was a New York Times piece on that last week. Yeah, and they, to, mm-hmm. The Let's New Arrival Incorporated. But, and you've looked at all those agencies that were involved we, in we this. Are trying, we are trying to see how that was, right? But one thing that the Haitian community has been paying attention to is whenever she speaks about her family, so-and-so is smart, they're doing wonderful in school, and she will go down the line. But when it comes to those two Black children that were adopted you know, from Haiti, they are never mentioned in the same line as being smart or doing good in school. It's only they were rescued and they are resilient and that, that they are grateful. So now we are asking the disconnect. Right. 
And we can only, only imagine what that is like in, in the household when your value is only connected to the fact that you were rescued. Right. Well, that meant white saviorism is probably then justifiably applied in this. It's, it was mentioned in that coverage in that New York Times article, critics of what of her, of her family, you know, they talk about white saviorism. But so you're saying that there's kind of a different standard applied and that there are, there are optics. There's, there's, something, there's something showy about this. There really is. And I'm just telling you, uh, you know, based on what I am getting, you know, from the community and things like that. And so this is the sentiment, is the process by which the adoption went through, because even Haitians, Haitian Americans, it's impossible for them to adopt their little cousins that they want to adopt. Even blood relatives that they want to adopt has been extremely, nearly impossible. And you know that personally, right? Oh yeah, yeah, no, I, I, have, I have close friends who have been trying to adopt f- relatives and family members whose parents have died. And it's, it's really, really difficult to adopt in Haiti. So I do not know her story, um, you know, how it happened, but there hasn't been any, I don't think she has spoken about it. I haven't seen her spoken about it, so I don't know. But the concern is the fact that clearly there, there's a missing link as to how they view those children. And, it, it, and it, it happens a lot when folks in this type of relationship, because then the value of that person, of that child is clearly not the same as the other children within the family. Um, again, you know, that's me looking from the outside that the community. Right, right. Uh, admittedly. All of that. Um, but but we hope that those children are, are, are well taken care of other mm-hmm. sure. than for the optics and other than for the photo ops and, and what's not. But honestly, I, I, I am disappointed. You know, again, I respect her accomplishment, but for you to agree to go to the process and get the confirmation and all of that to me uh, speaks a lot, speaks volume, you know, about the character and the belief of the person. And also very worried about her unwillingness to answer questions regarding, you know, different things. For, for example, uh, poor life, poor choice, all of those diff- critical issues for so many who have fought so hard that the unwillingness to answer and be clear is, is scary as well. So I would like to draw down our time together here with a question for listeners who are moved to to get involved in some way. What is the best way for them to support you, to support Haitians that are, uh, other Haitians that are busy in the Southern California community, anywhere in the country? What steps, some very concrete steps could they take and where they can follow you? Yes, so a couple of things is we are asking for folks to get involved um, in our campaign to ask to stop deportations, especially as we continue to deal with the pandemic. 
because for example in a country like Haiti for us to keep on risking people's lives uh, folks who have been tested positive for COVID-19 being deported to countries like Haiti and Guatemala especially with the families we are asking people to get involved and ask for for the government to to stop those deportations and release families from prison we have families who are literally been in prison for for eight months but we've been separated from them. They've been moved out far away from some of our communities. I'm thinking of certainly of Orange yeah. County, Southern California. But um, so uh-huh. how, where do they get, where do they get step up? Where, and the name of the organizations you think best situate them. And besides, and we've, we can't forget people have to vote. That's like the first people thing. People have to vote. And, and the ask is, is to please vote for those who cannot vote. Please be the voice for those who do not have a voice, those asylum seekers, those parents who are being deported. As I mentioned, we have families who have been in in prison Mm. for the past eight months. And I spoke with a family on on Saturday and the father told me how painful it was for him as a man to watch his kids two-year-old, three-year-old, unable to really progress and grow because of the environment they are in. He's unable to provide food for his child even when the food that they give them, the baby is unable to eat it. So he, he has lost every ounce of dignity when he's looking at his his wife who cannot sleep because she is in so much pain, but there is nothing he as a provider, as a husband, as a father can do for his family because he has been locked up in cage for over nine months only because he dared come and ask for asylum. That is the reality that we deal with on a daily basis. So we are asking people to vote for those people. We are asking people to vote for those DACA, for the TPS. Over 60,000 Haitians are at risk of being deported starting March 5th. And that is part of 300,000 other TPS holders from different countries. In the DACA and all of those folks who are unable to speak were afraid. Our ask is for everyone to vote for them. And the Stop Deportation Agents organizations too. Stop the Deportation Machine. Yes. And we have uh, a, we have a campaign. We have we have flyers and things like that asking people to get involved. You can join us and follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Uh, we also started the Black Immigrants Bell Fund. Claudia, I know we are running out of time, but I wanted to quickly touch about the Black Immigrants Bell Fund is a bell fund that we launched on June 19th for Juneteenth uh, 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 this year okay, because Black immigrants normally receive a higher bond than everybody else. We are looking at $30,000 to $60,000 bond for a Black immigrant from Haiti or Cameroon or Sierra Leone 
because they want to make sure that these people never get out of those of those prisons, giving them those high bonds. So we were forced to create an avenue to raise money to pay for those high bonds. So please go to the Black Immigrants Bail Fund and support that way. Okay. We want you to partner with us in this journey for freedom, liberation, liberty, equality, and love. Good Samaritans take note. So I want to thank you, Gerline. Joseph, you are a tireless advocate and activist. Thank you for the time you've given us to give us this heady, heady story about a situation. It's unacceptable. It's opening up and it's maiming people we haven't even met and it's on our watch. Thank you so much, Gerline, for being on Digging Out today. Thank you, Claudia, for helping me dig out. And we are inviting everyone to please help us dig so that we can uh, bring liberation for those people. Please remember those families, protect those families' lives and save their lives. Thank you so much, Claudia, for having me. My guest was Garlene Joseph, the executive director of the Haitian Bridge Alliance and so many other organizations cooperating and collaborating with them. And thank you again. Next week's show, well, that's going to straddle the 2020 general election returns. Digging out will no doubt call for a special shovel. Talk with you next week, and thank you for listening. <laughs>